Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. One of the things I enjoy the most about hosting this show is to hear the inspiring stories from the guests as they went along their career path. My guest today is medical laboratory scientist Dana Baker, and when it comes to inspiring stories, this is about as good as it gets. We're going to talk about how she discovered the profession and her continued search for more knowledge and education and how she labvocates for the field. Then after the show, I've got a preview of my interview with Kelsey Dawes. But right now, here's Dana Baker. So I, I've read, and you actually talked about this on uh, a different podcast. I think it was the Elaborate Topics podcast. But you, you said that you found your career as a, well, I think it was called the medical technologist at the time, but you found it right. by paging through a course catalog during your undergraduate studies. Uh, can, can you tell us that story? Yes. And I don't know. Course catalogs are really a thing anymore. The, the um, paper. <laughs> anyway. That's right. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yes. I um, just dated myself with that. But, um, but yes, I actually started out as a PR major. Um, believe it or not, <laughs> as I always tell people, but I wanted to um, do public relations. I was really into marketing during my, I say my undergrad years. But after taking my uh, first course, um, I kind of just really thought about if that was really truly the major I wanted to pursue at the time, because I actually grew up wanting to work in healthcare. I always wanted to be a doctor or do something to help others. And before I went, I guess, taking that deeper dive more or less into PR. I kind of just reevaluated where I was and really what I truly wanted to do. And I decided to revisit the idea of going back into healthcare. Um, I guess pursuing that path. I just wasn't sure about how to go about that. I, at that time, I knew I didn't want to pursue being a physician, given that I was really looking at a timeline for myself. Uh, at that time, my mom was uh, battling through a cancer diagnosis. And, you know, we weren't too sure how things were going to go. I mean, thankfully, she's still here. She's doing well. Uh, but at that time, it was just so questionable as far as where things would go with her health-wise. And I knew the responsibility that I had with my family to, you know, be a part of that support system. And so I wanted to find a degree that, that would also be helpful in taking care of um, my mom or just being a part of her uh, support team. And so thumbing through the catalog, I came across medical technology and said, ooh, what's that? It looks like mm -hmm. a lot of science, which I love science. So like I had a really strong background in math and it seemed to blend the best of, you know, both healthcare and science. Still had no clue what it was. Even when I went to interview for it, I still, I, in hindsight, I still didn't have a clear understanding of what it was until I think the first day of student labs where I kind of had the aha moment. <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. Oh, this is it. But, um, but it totally worked out. So I'm, I'm thankful. Okay. Okay. I kind of had, you know, cause I'm a pathologist assistant and I kind of had a similar right. situation. I, you know, basically found it by accident. And I, and I wonder sometimes like if, if that hadn't happened to me, where would I be now? And what would I be doing? Did you ever think about that? for yourself, like if you hadn't have come upon that page of the catalog, what would you be doing now? Yeah, I do wonder that. Um, or I had my moments where I did think about that. But uh, I think everything happened for a reason in the way that it did. And I think oddly enough, I still happen to that marketing piece of myself. 
you know, even though it's not a, a role or a title per se, but I still do a lot of, you know, PR for our profession and, you know, trying to advocate, educate others on what we do and how we contribute to the healthcare team. So I think it's funny, um, just looking back on that, how even though I made that transition, that I still use some of that in my, you know, current role. Sure, sure. That's, yeah, that that makes sense. Like you, the, the things that you learn in the past, you, you carry that forward and apply that to what you're doing uh, now. And that's, that, that's interesting Absolutely. that it happens. How long totally. did it take you to to realize once you started the medical technology coursework, how long did it take you to realize that that really was the career for you? Truthfully speaking, I don't think it happened until I was in my clinical practicum experience. Because I think like many of even, you know, students that are going through their process right now and you're taking your really tough exams, one, you don't realize the level of rigor uh, that is involved with this program and the level of training and just all the content knowledge that you really, you feel like you're squeezing into your brain at the time. And so going through the process, you know, there's a lot of doubt (laughs) or uncertainty, even if, you know, will I make it through this program? I don't know. Sure. But then when you get to the other side of that and you get into that real life clinical environment and are applying what you've learned content knowledge wise, I would say it really clicked for me then, uh, especially being in the lab, working shoulder to shoulder with other medical technologists at the time. And um, and I was like, wow, this is this is really cool. And um, thankfully, where I went, I had a lot of great mentors and um and very strong women that spoke into me as a strong woman, you know, wanting to pour their knowledge and expertise into me. So I think where I ended up shaped me very well for the for the path to follow. Do you have any like? Can you tell us a story or two about some of those mentors, especially the the women mentors? How they might have how they how they guided you along? Sure. Uh, So, I mean, it's no secret that our profession, um, you know, that we do have or that there's an increased focus on inclusivity and diversity. Um, If you look at the numbers, even the recent ASCP survey, you'll look at the breakdown of the um, ethnic or racial makeup of our clinical laboratories and our profession. um, There's there's not a lot of, um, I'll say, people of color. And so there is an underrepresentation there. But the laboratory I went to, the entire second shift, I think with the exception of maybe one person in chemistry, all were all black women. And so I think I ended up walking into a very unique situation in that um, you know, they they really prepared me for um for things that may come, you know, the hard days, the days where people may not uh, be as accepting or as open or as a collegial and, you know, but to still, you know, hold my head up high to still, you know, push forward and to still fight for those things and champion for diversity and inclusion in our laboratories, because, you know, that's just so important in that, you know, we want to have a diverse field so that we are also representing the patient population that we're serving. And so a lot of that before, I think before you really heard about DEI, DEI, you know, that was really embedded into me at that time, um, especially um, through those women. And so I've always valued that from the start of my profession, you know, all the way up through this point. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I, I think that was a really good influence to have, especially early on. Yes. Okay. After, well, actually, how, how many years was it then that you were working in the field before you decided to uh, go back for your, your MBA? I believe, let me think of this timeline here. I was probably in eight years, maybe. Maybe oh, wow. six years. Okay. Yeah, probably about six to eight years before I decided to go back for my MBA. Okay. And then why was it that you wanted to go and get the MBA? At that point, I felt like that was, um, I would say, necessary for me because I knew I wanted to move forward in my career or at least promote up to a supervisory or leadership position. And I knew that I didn't have the, I say, the formal training or education to be a leader. And that I feel like we're all leaders, you know, we can all lead. But I think after you've had certain experiences with some leaders that, you know, may have been great people, but didn't have the tools or the skills uh, to really lead. So they weren't weren't able to fulfill that role as needed. Uh, So I knew that was something that I valued and wanted for myself that I I recognized in myself that, you know, I need formal training so I have a better understanding and grasp of all the things or responsibilities that are required or expected of a leader. And so that was the, I would say the intention with going back to pursue my MBA. Okay. So it was, you, you had it intended to develop the leadership skills to use in the lab. It wasn't like to go and do something else. Right. And actually shortly thereafter, I did become a clinical supervisor, clinical laboratory supervisor. Okay. And, um, and that actually helped me to segue into education because a lot of, I'll say some of my elective courses that I took within my MBA really focused on the HR piece or learning and development mm-hmm. piece. And so in transitioning into that leadership position shortly after graduating, I realized that I really wanted to do something more in learning and development and ended up transitioning into becoming a laboratory trainer. You, you mentioned the leadership position that you then got. Can you can you talk about that? Like, what was that experience like? It was, you know, it was great in that it challenged me and it helped me to grow a lot. And I would say there's a lot that we don't see from the bench perspective. I, I noticed that there's there's differences in um, perception and responsibilities for sure. And although there is some overlap, especially as you are grooming others to become leaders, like I pre, prior to that, I worked on you know scheduling or assisted with ordering or inventory management. But then when you transition into a leadership role and you're literally you know responsible for other people and providing the oversight for those pieces and that you're really being looked to as a subject matter expert, not just for the section or the clinical bench that you worked on, but over an entire facility, you know, it, it really changes the, your scope <laughs> of your work. And I, I would say the depth and breadth of it in that you really have to understand all these moving parts and how they come together so that you do have an effective laboratory operation while also attempting to maintain employee satisfaction so that you have good retention um, of staff. So you're not in fear of, you know, call outs or people, you know, wanting to quit and transition to another laboratory. Although that's a natural part of the process, of course, you want to see people grow and progress as they need to. 
but it's just uh, you're managing and overseeing a lot of moving parts um, more so than in like the previous role that I had where, you know, I was, you know, more or less focused just on the testing component. I didn't have all these other pieces that I had to really focus on and pay attention to. But so that for me helped me to grow a lot. I, I, I think I gained a lot more um, patience and grace in that, um, especially with regard to leadership and what they really do have to shoulder and uh, what they're accountable for. And so it, it was it was a very humbling experience for me. I'm sure. I'm sure. Did you ever have those experiences? Like, yeah, yeah. I just kind of want to go back to the bench. Like, I, I don't want to do this kind of stuff. You know, funny enough, in that role, I, I felt like I never truly left the bench. Okay. Um, because I I was that leader that <laughs> would jump back on a bench if needed, and so, being, you know, and there's two trains of thought I think with that because of course if you jump back into the fire, you're not able to provide the the, the um, oversight or seeing the full picture. Right. Um, and so once you're on the bench, you kind of return back to your tunnel vision of what's going on with that bench, but you may be missing what's going on altogether. So that's the the challenge for a leader, especially when you're initially transitioning from the bench into a leadership role, because you, you see that gap and you automatically just want to jump in and help your people out. You know, right. um, that's part of that camaraderie. <laughs> But, um, and so I would say that was one of my challenges as a leader was that I always wanted to jump in, you know, into the fire to help, but not realizing that sometimes I really need to pull back. So I didn't lose that um, perspective of what was going on, you know, all across the board. I feel like the best leaders are the ones that can do, you know, that can fill in on the bench if they need to and and, and things like that. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Like you need to be able to have the, the, um, the wider view of, of everything, which you can't really do if you're doing just a specific task. Yeah, it's a, it's a balance. It's a balancing act <laughs> for sure. You mentioned that you went on to become a laboratory trainer. Can can we talk about that a little bit? Because that kind of leads to, I mean, you've got quite a bit of experience then later, uh, which we'll get to later about the teaching experience. I'm sure. So uh, I became a training specialist. So I was responsible for staff training across uh, really all three shifts. And at the time, it was kind of my zany idea of, well, you know, we really need to train people for the shift that they're going to. And so I (laughs) found myself all over the place, uh, depending on if people were uh, being hired into, let's say, third shift, even though my my, uh, assigned shift was day shift. But I thought it was important for me to show up on third shift, for example, because that workload looked totally different from our day shift uh, workload. And so I wanted to make sure people were adequately prepared for the shift that they would be operating on. And although I was all over the place at the time, I would say that's really where my love for teaching and training really came from. Um, especially, you know, needing to adapt to different levels of learners at that point. I would have some people that would come in and would, you know, be experienced uh, laboratory scientists. So I didn't really have to go into the theory or the principle as much. It was more so, okay, how do you operate this specific analyzer from this specific vendor, you know, if you don't have that previous experience? Sure. Whereas for some who were, I mean, fresh out of school, you know, we're drawing diagrams, you know, we're, we're going through uh, flow charts 
and really going through the mechanics and um, of how things work and going through the theory just so that they had a better um, depth and breadth of understanding when it came to those concepts. And so I, you know, I found myself needing to adjust to the learner, but really just falling back on, you know, my previous training experiences and what I felt like I didn't receive from certain trainers or, or also what I did receive from other trainers. And I'll keep that in mind. Like, yes, I want to be that type of trainer where I think in that type of role, you need to be adaptable and flexible and, um, Mm -hmm. but also being willing to let your, your baby bird fly. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, because, you know, that's where we learn, we learn from our mistakes. I think, you know, if we did everything perfectly well, you know, you know, those things don't stick with you as much as like when you do make an error, you know, that, that burns (laughs) with you. And I turn it into a learning opportunity. Okay. What can we learn from this? And how do we, you know, transfer this forward into our ongoing clinical practice or ongoing laboratory testing practices, you know? Sure. Um, Let's learn from this and grow from this. And, you know, as long as we did not harm a patient, you know, there's a lot of things that can be fixed and addressed accordingly. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Like I often tell people there's certain things that you make a mistake and that's something that probably everybody working in the lab has done. But that's a mistake that you're only going to do one time because you will mm-hmm. never, ever forget it. <laughs> you will not. Yeah. And, you know, and and speak up about it. You know, don't try to hide it. Um, that that creates more of a problem, you know. But when we speak up to those mistakes, you know, that gives one us opportunity to address it. But right. also, I think most importantly, to learn from it. How can we learn from this and carry it forward? Yes. Yes, exactly. You went on then to get a second master's degree. And this is in healthcare simulation. Yes. And I want to talk about this a little bit because before I started researching this about you, I, I didn't know what this was. So can we, first, can we, what is healthcare simulation? Okay. Uh, so at first I didn't know what it was either. So that's <laughs> okay. why I went after it. Um, All right. So I was, at the time I was working in Phoenix and I was touring a, an educational facility and they had a room marked as simulation lab. So, of course, you know, as laboratorians, we see lab. We're like, ooh, what kind of lab is that? And so they're like, oh, this is where we do simulations. Uh, I was like, okay, I don't have no idea what that is. Um, <laughs> what is it? And so the way it was explained to me at the time was, you know, this is an educational technique, more or less, that we use. Um, well, not technique, but a tool that we use to help um learners, you know, bridge what they're learning in the classroom and apply that to the real life clinical environment without um, creating, making those errors or um, I would say causing patient harm, say in that real life space. So for industries like if you look at military aviation or um, including nursing, uh, simulations have been embedded or part of their educational training for a very long time. Uh, so they would use that as, you know, this is where you practice, this is where you make your mistakes, but this is also where you hone your clinical skills and training so that by the time you get into the real life clinical environment, you know, you have one, increased confidence as a learner, but also two, you've already practiced this stuff on whether it's on mannequins or uh, what we call task trainers. And I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, But you've already practiced those skills that relates to your um, 
to your, I would say, clinical responsibilities or expected skill set. And so now that you're doing this for real patients or in that real space, you know, it, it, it's a little bit more seamless, I would say, in that process. And in doing that, we hope to see decreased uh, medical errors, to see uh, decreased uh, any type of form of patient harm, I would say. But also we're increasing or improving that clinical competency uh, for those individuals. And so I always bring up the example of, you know, we've always been doing simulation. If you think about it with CPR training, you know, oh, we don't sure. learn CPR by doing it on real people first. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, you know, we're doing it on, uh, you know, and it's actually a task trainer. So it's a part of a mannequin, really, you know, but you're practicing that skill set on that CPR dummy or um, like I like to call it a task trainer. So you're practicing your CPR on that. And then once you really get down the the rhythm or the routine of how to perform that process, you know, now you're capable of transition or transferring that skill to a real person, you know, mm-hmm. we don't start with the real people. <laughs> right. um, same thing with phlebotomy training. You know, you're using those phlebotomy arms. Oh yeah, that's also right. Also a task trainer. So okay. we're not, unless you know, there are some places that will start you out on real people, but uh, for most programs, they're going to start you on the you know, phlebotomy arms. So you're practicing on something or on a part first to just improve your skill, increase your confidence, so that when you do start doing that on a person. You know, it's not as difficult to go ahead and start that being a puncture process on a real arm. You're you're transferring what you learn. And so in learning and understanding that, but then realizing that, you know, not just in nursing, but in medicine and other um, health professions, such as uh, physical therapy, they're using a healthcare simulation as a part of their educational training for their learners to better prepare them for those real life um, environments. And so you do have some CLS and MLS programs that are the same, medical or clinical, laboratory science, that are incorporating uh, simulation into their programs. And so I looked up the program and thought it was interesting and uh, decided to pursue it. Okay. So what was the, like, like, how was the program structured then? Did you have to learn how to use these task trainers as well and then develop like teaching methods to show them to other people or how did it work? Uh, So basically the program I went through really started us out in the foundation of simulation. Um, Just getting an understanding of not just the terminology, but the history and the, I would say the the workflow of it. So simulation is not just something like, Hey, I just want to simulate how, you know, we would interact with patients. You have to get really specific. Um, what's the overarching goal for this simulation? What are the educational objectives for this? And, you know, what, looking at the endpoint, what do we want learners to take away from this is really important. But also in how to design or create like your simulation scenario and understanding what a pre-brief is versus the actual simulation event. And we did a lot of, uh, I would say, discussion or education around the debriefing process. And so for a lot of simulation events, they typically flow into this three, um, I say three part component setup or flow where you have the pre-brief where you're basically informing the learners of basically what to expect or anticipate in the simulation activity and the overarching goal for it. And then you have the actual scenario where you're carrying out that simulation uh, as um, 
as designed or created. And then you have the debriefing part where really that's where most of the learning takes place because this is where you're having a, uh, I would say not a wrap up, but a follow-up discussion with learners just to really get into the learner's frame as to why they made the decisions that they made uh, during that actual simulation scenario. But there are several different kinds of debriefing styles. And so we had to be exposed to those different debriefing styles just so we had an understanding of those different models and trains of thought. And then I would say finally ended up with a capstone project where one, we had to do a, a, a lot of practicum hours in simulation. So a lot of observations, a lot of notes regarding that. I didn't necessarily have to learn how to operate a mannequin, but I need to be familiar with the mechan with the mechanisms of um, a mannequin. And we had to look at different models and uh, the different features of those different mannequins and how learners can really interact with them. You know, how do we increase the realism or the fidelity of that interaction between a, a student and uh, a mannequin? Because, you know, it, it's not <laughs> easy to um, to really get learners to say, you know, treat this as a real patient, especially, right. you know, it starts with the nervous giggles and, you know, they're like, you know, but it, but it's a dummy, you know, and it's like, no, it's a mannequin. And, you know, you what you learn here, you will transfer. So communicate with them as if they are a real person and treat the situation as a real life situation. And so just really learning how to do those pieces, but also how do we take all this information and integrate into what we're trying to do professionally, which of course my goal was, how do I integrate this into clinical laboratory science curriculum? And so that was the focus of, um, of my particular capstone. Okay. That was an overview. <laughs> it's, it was a lot, a lot of good stuff in that program, but that's an overview of what we learned. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And I have to think, especially nowadays, it's probably really valuable to know about healthcare simulation because, you know, you hear about students are not able to do clinical rotations like they have in the past because of things being shut down and, and things like that. Have you found that having these these skills and this knowledge of healthcare simulation has helped you now that, you know, a lot of things are virtual right now. Is that something you found? I would say yes, um, because, you know, with simulation, you really have to think outside the box. And even just in my educational training uh, through that, because we did get a lot of, I was a lot of focus on educational methodology and theories. So you're exposed to these different methods and approaches anyway. And so for me, you know, it just forced me to kind of go into that space of, okay, what can we do creatively that still meets the objectives and something that learners can still transfer what they learned into that, you know, real life clinical environment. And so I think for anyone who's done simulation training or has gone through a simulation program, you know, you're, you're, um, <laughs> I would say you're encouraged to really think outside the box while still meeting, you know, the objectives of that particular educational activity. And so it, it really helped me a lot, especially at one point in the semester where we did have to go really virtual with some of that training. And, uh, but I think it's created really awesome conversations for us across the board, mm -hmm. just to see what other programs are doing, uh, to see how we can move forward um, because our pipeline still needs to be uh, supported. You know, we, we can't stop 
of graduating future laboratorians. We need them, especially now more than ever. Right. Yeah. And um, so how can we still be within the parameters of our, you know, accreditation of our training, making sure they get their their content expertise that they really need while still um, partnering with our clinical facilities or institutions to ensure that, you know, they receive their well complement or rather supplement what they've learned um, in our programs. I'll be back with more from Dana Baker right after this. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress Up Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Up Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show. And now back to Dana Baker on the People of Pathology podcast. In looking at sort of your career path, I mean, you've got the medical technology uh, certification, two master's degrees. Now you're currently working on your doctorate in uh, education, curriculum and instruction. So the theme that I'm getting from you is this kind of constant search for more knowledge and more information. Is that is that accurate? Would you agree with that? Yes, I would say that. <laughs> Okay. Um, um, I would I would say as as I'm going through my profession or my professional career rather, as I see the opportunity to strengthen the skill set in myself, mm-hmm. I'm I'm open to pursuing it. So I know that I don't have a formal background in education, and I was really interested in pursuing that because I want to become a better educator. I you know. I think as long as we have breath in our bodies, you know, we're lifelong learners anyway. But if I have the opportunity to pursue that and strengthen my skill set, um, you know, practicing what I preach, you know, I always tell, you know, new graduates that or mentees, right. you know, hey, if you want to grow and, you know, and expand your skill set, you know, always be open to pursuing, you know, whether it's another degree, a certification or what have you. And so I definitely want to model that in what I do in my career as well. Yeah, that that's a really good lesson. I mean, not only to be open to those opportunities, but when they come up to somehow develop the ability to recognize them and, and to grab them when they're there, because that opportunity might not come up again. Exactly. Exactly. Then can you tell us about the your, your doctorate program that you're, you're currently in? Um, how is that going so far? Going good. I got straight A's this semester, so I'm excited. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Good. What What is that program like then? What What kind of things are you learning? Um, just getting more once again to that deeper dive into educational theory and educational approaches. Uh, how do we, you know, I would say approach uh, change in curriculum, and not just you as a silo of an educator, but how does that impact the entire system um, and who's a part of your system. So, you know, things that I didn't consider, I would say, um, prior, you know, you tend to think about your department or just your, um, I say, your specific school that you may work within, but not realizing that any changes that you may want to implement, especially with me and simulation, that my system is a little bit bigger, that it interconnects with, uh, you know, um, I say colleagues in simulation, if we're doing something interprofessional with other programs or I'll say other professional programs, 
that change can also be an impact on that program as well. So just really understanding that connectivity when you do want to integrate something like simulation into your curriculum and you also want to bring in an interprofessional component into that, how that uh, trickles and impacts and influences your, your entire system. So just learning about that, but also the program that I'm going through also has a diversity focus to it. So how do you teach to diverse learners? How do you uh, consider your, um, I would say the impact of your uh, teaching delivery or teaching practice when you do consider these diverse populations? So that was a component that I really sought out, uh, especially given that, you know, I really do champion diversity and inclusion, uh, not just, you know, on the clinical side, but definitely on the education side of it as well. And so just really learning about different learner populations and how to adapt and make sure that I'm, you know, truly teaching to uh, that demographic or different demographics without bias, um, but also focusing on those key elements that really speak to the learners as well, because I'm, I'm just really into wanting to create a better, say, overall individual, not just a laboratory scientist, but also embedding into them that, you know, it's not just about what you're doing within those walls or the confines of the lab, but the work that you're doing there impacts an entire system and impacts, you know, once again, that diverse uh, patient population that we have. So just being mindful of those pieces, but I'm learning a lot of those pieces in the program that I'm in too, and how to build that into my own teaching practice. Then let's talk about the teaching practice a little bit. Like you're currently a clinical assistant professor uh, at the University of Kansas. Yes, I'm at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Okay. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, like teaching, it seems like that's been something you've always enjoyed. And you mentioned earlier how you had some early sort of mentors that helped you, you know, early on in your career. Do you have any stories of you how you were a mentor or a role model to one of your students, maybe that maybe someone who, you know, wasn't sure about the field at first and then something that that you helped them with really sparked that interest in them. I don't really have like a specific story right offhand, but I would say from, from the mentees that I've had, especially, you know, one or two in particular, we, I always made a point to talk to them about, you know, balance, balance of school and family life. And for some of them, they really struggle, especially in this type of rigorous program, because they tend to kind of close out everything else that's going on and really just try to focus on their schoolwork, but then find that they're struggling and trying to, you know, meet, uh, I say, the expectations or goals of that schoolwork. Uh-huh. And so I've had a couple come to me after I've had a talk with them about, you know, you know, balance is key in this program and you need your family, you, you need friendship, you need relationship, you know, with people. And so give yourself that break or that opportunity to kind of just be who you are around people that you love and that you feel like you can be yourself around, um, because really that's what's going to give you the balance that you need to be able to not just survive, <laughs> but to thrive um, in this program. And I found that, you know, when they did strike that balance, they would come back to me and say, you know what, that was that was so impactful. You know, thank you for telling me that. I really thought that, you know, when I kind of hit this wall in, in the program, I wasn't sure which way I wanted to go 
or how I was going to manage or navigate that. Right. But by reconnecting with, you know, maybe dedicating, you know, a, a Saturday afternoon to movie watching with family or a Sunday evening dinner with, you know, a close friend, that that really kind of brought things back into balance for them, making it, you know, more feasible for them to complete their program. So stuff like that to me is meaningful, especially, you know, not just speaking to, once again, not just to the lab um, piece, although of course lab is very important to all of us, <laughs> to the work that we do. Right. But I, but I really champion that, you know, balance it, you know, balance it with your family and your friends and, you know, those other things that bring you joy. And if you could bridge it to something else that you love to, you know, do that. And, um, and so just watching, you know, especially like my mentees evolve in that way, it's, it's really been really amazing to see. Yeah, that's got to be uh, rewarding to see that and that you've had that kind of influence on them. You're active in several professional organizations, uh, ASCP, ASCLS, AABB, and you've won a few awards uh, over the years, 40 Under 40 from ASCP in 2016, uh, the Voices Under 40 from ASCLS just this year. Um, mm -hmm. Why is it important to you to be involved in professional organizations? I think the biggest piece is just, one, keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on in your profession is really important. I found that when I was not involved in professional organizations, I felt more siloed in what I was experiencing or how I felt about, you know, certain things about our profession, such as, you know, the visibility or lack of visibility of our profession or the lack of understanding of what we do or um, our education even as medical laboratory scientists. So you, you tend to think that you're the only one that's frustrated about those pieces mm -hmm. or have questions about those pieces or that it's only your laboratory that is really going through vacancy issues, for instance. But then when you plug in a professional organization, you'll see like, whoa, this is a problem across the board. You know, um, everyone's experiencing problems with uh, vacancies or, you know, they may find frustration in the salary or wages that we receive or, you know, X, Y, and Z. You know, you just see more connection across the board that, you know, this isn't just a you problem, but it's a we problem. And how do we come together to address those problems? And you could really become more a part of the solution rather than, um, you know, just finding yourself frustrated with the, the problems or the issues that you're facing within your own facility or laboratory. And so I found by joining professional organizations, I've been able to uh, see or have uh, a broader perspective of, of say uh, of what's going on in our field, what's happening across laboratories across the board, educational programs across the board, and you know being at the table to kind of have those think tanks, I would say, and trying to think of ways or opportunities that we can gain more visibility or provide more solutions to those issues has um, really, I think, has made the work more meaningful. For me, so I always encourage people like, hey, you know, plug in, so that way you can be a part of these key and very crucial conversations. But also, networking is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're meeting other people in other areas because you just never know when and where you're going to cross paths again. And our world is a lot smaller than we think as uh, laboratory professionals. There's a lot yeah. of overlap in what we do. Yep. And a lot of connectivity, like, you know, like, I don't know who you know, Dennis, but I'm pretty sure you know someone who I may be very close to. Um, sure. 
And so, and vice versa, you know, you just yeah. never know, you know, there's, there's a lot of connection and within our, within our organizations, I would say. And so I always encourage people, you know, networking is really great. Um, all these um, organizations offer mentoring. So you have the opportunity to connect with mentors um, in other areas, but specifically maybe in an area of interest to you, you know, so, and it's, and you're, you don't have to pay for it. You know, that's, that's an amazing part. You don't have to pay for the mentorship. That's not an additional expense. You know, that that's an offering that comes with membership. Right. So membership really does have its benefits in that regard. But th- those were like the really big pieces for me. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned the mentorship thing, and I know this is something that it, it's important to you as well as, you know, promoting the profession. And then you've gone out to high schools and colleges and, and speak to students there. Is that, is that right? Yes. I've um, actually been doing that virtually now too. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got, we got to start early, you know, we don't want to wait for people to get to college to say, Hey, you want to learn about medical laboratory science? I mean, it's great to right. do it there too. But, you know, we, we want to, you know, target those groups, especially now that STEM is so big and such a focus mm-hmm. well, STEM and STEAM um, and K through 12 education. So why not get in front of them? And especially from those teachers, they love it when we come in and speak to their groups or even offer that virtually because, you know, they're talking about these professions or what, you know, they can do with these skills that they're learning, but it gives them more, um, more tangible application of what they're teaching to these students. So they love it when we come in and present about what we do and the educational path that we took to get there. And I've had uh, some of those students, even, you know, high school students reach out to me on LinkedIn after um, presenting to them, to those groups and say, Hey, I didn't know anything about medical laboratory science. And then you presented and now I'm really interested in that. So I'm like, yay, you know, (laughs) right. Yeah. You know, think about think about what you want to do when you go to college, and if I can give you tidbits of how to get there, and look out for our program. And you know, we we definitely want to see more of you apply to our programs, and so I think that's um you know really crucial. Yeah, absolutely. So we've heard, and especially now, we've heard about, and, and you mentioned this as well, shortages, staff shortages in the lab, things like burnout. Again, especially right now you know, lab staff are overworked um, and there aren't enough of us. And, you know, COVID has made these things, you know, even worse. And right. we've talked a lot about these things that, that you're doing that sh- would help to increase the workforce and, and inspire younger people to get into the lab. Is there anything else that we can do or that we should be doing that we're not currently doing to, to kind of alleviate this problem? Ooh, that's a good question. I'll just say for, you know, maximize whatever platform you're on, I think is really key. I've seen some people, you know, that may say, you know, well, I'm not on social media, but, you know, I may have a friend that works in media, you know, I'm like, well, great. Promote the profession to that person, you know? Yeah. Or if you are on social media and you say, well, you know, I, my account has more personal stuff on it. I'm not sure about that, you know? You can create a, another account if it's not going to take away from you too much. That's the biggest piece. You know, I don't want to overburden people, especially for those that are, you know, really giving their all in clinical laboratories right now. And I really commend our colleagues that are doing that. I know that they are going above and beyond 
And, and that's hard, especially given that, you know, you feel like you are invisible. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of attention to, you know, doctors, nurses, and I even right. say you don't see as much attention given to the respiratory therapists that are intubating these patients. And, um, and so we're not alone in that, um, you know, we feel invisible piece, mm-hmm. but it's hard to ask people to give more and do more when they feel like, you know, I've given and I've done. <laughs> Right. You know, what more do you want from me? So I think for those of us who are able to actually get out there and advocate in any space um, that we can, you know, really maximize that and and do that. I, um, you know, for some of us, you know, we have used our social media platforms for that. Mm-hmm. But if you're connected with, you know, state representatives, if you're connected with like I said, with the media, any connection that you have, really um, take that opportunity to maximize that and really talk about your profession. Talk about the profession with your family. Uh, we tend not to talk about it <laughs> at home, but you don't know who they're interacting with and who they may cross paths with even, um, where they'll say, you know, hey, actually, you know, my uncle is a medical laboratory scientist or a pathologist assistant, you know, or, you know, you know, you just don't know those other conversations that can really stem from you just educating those people that are in your circle, because then you'll get calls about, hey, you know, I heard that you do this. Will you be willing to interview for that? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm writing up an article. I would love to do a feature piece on you. Um, because really, that's how I've gained some of my opportunities to really advocate for our profession is really just talking about it with people that I know that are not in our profession. Uh, you know, sometimes we, you know, we may tend to speak to each other about advocating, but we also need to pour that over into um, into those that are not necessarily within our profession as well. That's good advice. Yeah, with the, we can always use more uh, lab advocating, as you put it. That's I love that word. Yes, we do. All right, uh, this, this has been a great conversation, Dana Baker. Uh, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you so much for having me. This was this was great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Big thanks to Dana Baker. Like I said at the beginning, her story is very in- inspiring, and you can hear passion in her voice for her work and just her excitement in talking about it. And I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and you know someone who might be inspired themselves, please share it with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You'll find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of my interview with molecular medicine PhD student, Kelsey Dawes. Let's talk about molecular medicine a little bit. If you had to explain to somebody what this means, how, how would you explain it? 
Well, see, molecular medicine is simply the science of medicine. Um, so it's really attempting to really like elucidate the disease pathogenesis at the molecular or the physiological levels. And so um, most like molecular medicine research really aims to improve like the core foundations of medicine. So like diagnostics, prognostics, treatments and prevention. Um, so instead of like learning the clinical workup of when a patient comes in with angina, um, instead we're really studying the molecular changes that happen during a myocardial infarction, for example, um, and how we can improve the patient outcomes for that particular disease, if that makes sense. Okay. So it, it seems like molecular medicine then kind of involves different areas of medicine, not only pathology and lab medicine, but also it seems like surgery, radiology, even oncology and things like that. Is that, does that sound right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, um, Several different researchers, like in in my program, they're in oncology or even just genetics or psychiatry, and you know, I mean, like it's it's vast and very inter um, involves many different departments. Yep, absolutely, and that's okay. the amazing thing about it. To hear more from Kelsey Dawes, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.